0: This week on Myths and Legends, we return to the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen, and we'll learn that having a clothing budget larger than some nations' GDPs might be a bad idea, and how you can share the wonder of nature with those you love by killing it and shoving it into a box. The creature this week is the spirit animal of everyone who tries and does not try again. I mean, they're good. They tried once. Let's go home. This is Myths and Legends, episode 176, Matchless. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, as I said, we're back in the literary fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen, the very famous Danish author of such stories as Thumbelina, the Ugly Duckling, the Princess and the Pea, and of course, the Little Mermaid. Today, we're gonna be telling three stories of matchless protagonists. The first is that of an emperor who wants to wow the world with a new set of clothes. Oh shoot, the emperor muttered. Was it 11? His generals looked at the clock and sighed. Yeah. Yeah, it was. The plans for the defense of the empire were pretty important too, like all of their lives were pretty important. Oh, okay. He's gone. Cool. The emperor was off to the only thing more important than the physical safety of his empire. His closet. He burst through the door to greet the man who dressed him. The hunched pale man who spent 12 hours a day in a closet. He asked his emperor about, you know, a window. That request got denied flat out. The sunlight would fade the clothes, of course. Even lanterns and candles were on a need-to-light basis. Couldn't have the empire's most precious resource burning to the ground. And, by precious resource, he, of course, meant his outfits. He had to rush away from the security meeting, like he had to rush away from diplomatic summits economic planning, and just meeting with his subjects to change his clothes. He threw off that hour's coat, saying that he didn't care what his dresser did with the coat. Give it to people who didn't care what they looked like or burn it. Just get it out of his sight. It was last hour's fashion, and he didn't want anything to do with it. The man bowed low and dragged the coat from view, presenting another one. The emperor looked at it in the light of the lantern. Huh. Stripes again? The man didn't dare make eye contact. I mean, he had a whole army of designers working without ceasing. They didn't get holidays or weekends. His clothes budget dwarfed defense. And he could get away with it because autocratic regimes were fun like that. But even still, there were only so many ways to make a coat, and so many patterns they could use. And he wasn't really into any avant-garde stuff like the meat coat, or the coat that was really pants that was really a coat. So they were doing the best they could. Not really, though. Are they? The emperor heard from behind him. The emperor spun around to see two men in the doorway of his closet. He gasped and threw on his coat. This was his closet, his inner sanctum. This was where he decided the fashion for the rest of his empire. Viewing the inside of such a room was akin to viewing state secrets. The emperor said that they better explain themselves, who they were and what they were doing here, or they risked death. The men didn't answer that, but instead looked at the emperor's coat. Oh, stripes again? Hmm. When they worked for him, they would never put him in a coat that was so... (laughs) This morning. The problem wasn't with the emperor, though. He was a genius. He was, like, really smart. No, it was that he was surrounded by people who were categorically unfit for the office that they held. Frankly, they were stupid. The clothes that these two men, these two weavers that appeared in his closet, would make for him would not just be the most beautiful clothes he had ever seen, but they would be completely invisible to anyone who was in a position they didn't deserve or was just very stupid. The man who basically lived in the emperor's closet, his dresser, was about to call the guards when the emperor shoved his hand over the man's mouth. He wanted to hear these two weavers out. The men warned the emperor, though. This would reveal to him the truth about everyone. He would know which of his advisors and friends were truthful and looking out for the empire's best interest. And he would know which ones were sycophants, only trying to tell the emperor what they thought he wanted to hear. The emperor screamed that he had to have it. Give it to him now, please. The men took a step back, palms in the air. They didn't have it, of course. It had to be made. When they left his service, they traveled east and learned this technique. But it was extremely expensive and time consuming. They didn't dare share the secret. They couldn't. Lesser hands couldn't make this. But the two of them working for, I don't know, six to eight weeks with a limitless budget? That could probably get it for him. The Emperor jumped up to his closet cash and dragged two giant sacks of gold to the weavers. Would this do it? Was this enough? The two men looked at it. No, but it was a start. Press releases went out, and the people actually cared about the emperor's wardrobe this time. At first, they thought it was going to be a repeat of the pants coat's pants, but magic thread, magic silk, it didn't just apply to the royal court, either. Everyone could look at it and find out which one of their neighbors was stupid or unfit for their job, which most suspected was most of their neighbors. The emperor started early. He told his advisor he trusted most the one who always gave him the best, most honest advice, to go see how that suit was coming along. The old minister entered the expansive hall that the weavers had been given for their work, and passed roll after seemingly empty roll, before finding the two men working hard at the looms. Then, it dawned on the old minister. He he couldn't see the thread. He could hear his heart thumping in his ears, and his palms began to get sweaty, When his emperor found out that he was stupid and unqualified for his position, he shuddered. But his emperor never had to find out. He snapped, too, to the weaver standing in front of him, asking him if he wanted to come inspect the thread. He nodded, and as they showed him the colors and the patterns that absolutely existed, they asked if this wasn't the most beautiful thing he had ever seen. He grinned. Oh, absolutely. But... Ugh, his eyes were terrible, so he couldn't see the most intricate details. He could definitely see it. He could totally see it if anyone asked. Would they describe the details to him so he could effectively relay it to the emperor? <music> wow, that good, huh? The emperor beamed. The minister conveyed it with so much excitement... He almost believed it. No one could know, though. No one could ever know. The minister said that there was one more thing. The weaver said that they needed more cash. They had to buy more threads and gold strands and stuff. It was all technical stuff over his head. The emperor didn't even wait for the minister to finish before he dragged out a few more bags of gold and gems. He smiled. It was good to be the emperor, who has two thumbs and is glad autocratic regimes exist. You, you are glad, because I'm the emperor and I say you're glad, the emperor said to his minister. He waited for the minister to do the thing where he pointed two thumbs at himself and grinned, before dismissing the man to carry the gold out himself. All the golden gems, the ones that didn't go straight into the weaver's pockets, went toward costly silk and thread that also went right into the weaver's pockets. More people went to inspect the garment, and more came back with glowing, almost unbelievably good reviews, also with requests for more cash. The time arrived when the emperor himself went to inspect the suit, as it was almost finished. Just two months and several bags of gold above budget. What a steal. Among the group were the four or so men who had gone to previously inspect it. And before the emperor even saw it, he could hear the four men remarking how beautiful it looked. Wow, just the intricacies, the stitching. None of them knew clothes terms they knew what they liked, and they liked that, and could definitely see it. The emperor looked on the empty loom, gulped, and grinned. Wow! (laughs) It was the day of the unveiling and the weavers had the best idea. For the emperor to show the people what their tax dollars had paid for. Fashion show. The weavers told the emperor to get undressed, and stand before the mirror, so that he could watch each and every piece as they put it on him. They put the hat on him, telling him to pay attention to the rainbow gilded feather. It was a nice touch, or how about those sleeves, right? The emperor was just ecstatic. The pattern, the color, the fit... It felt like he was wearing nothing at all. The weavers nodded. Oh yeah, that was a feature, the silk. When spun this way, was lighter than a spider's web, which is something everyone wants to think about when they're wearing their clothes. One of the weavers teared up and said that they did it. They made the perfect garment. The emperor smiled. This was a special day. He ordered his chamberlains in, the first people that saw the suit and they marveled at it. Definitely not just watching the emperor's paunch jiggle under a tank top. He asked if they would pick up and carry his train, and they agreed, both breathing a sigh of relief, that the other seemed to pick it up at the same time, without incident. They had made a canopy for their emperor to walk under, as he showed off his new, magical clothes. And as he stepped out into the crowd, the mass of people fell silent. And then they cheered. Wow! They loved their leader's clothes. The fit, the cut, the patterns. So beautiful. The most beautiful? Is there a thing more than most beautiful? It was that, probably. The emperor grinned. He never had an outfit more successful than this. Those guys were worth their budget-destroying fee. Maybe he would even wear this one for two hours. Whoa. But he doesn't have anything on. A parent heard above the din of the crowd. The parent laughed. The innocent child said that the emperor didn't have anything on. But, wait a second. The man looked at the emperor. It, he didn't have anything on. He whispered to his neighbor. The emperor didn't have anything on. The emperor, who was out walking among his people, didn't know when the crowd changed, but he knew that it changed and went from marveling about how awesome his clothes were to laughing at him, saying that he had nothing on. He looked down. Huh. He was a little cold, but that was only because of the clothes that felt like spider silk. Right? Oh no. To everyone looking on the emperor, it merely seemed like he glanced down at his invisible clothes, before holding his head even higher and finishing his walk. His ministers didn't let his train touch the ground. For such a simple story, there is a lot to unpack. The political reading is kind of obvious, that a vain narcissistic leader would be allowed to persist in his intense self-deception to the detriment of his people, because the parties that could put a stop to it and help all the people live in reality are benefiting from the deception and or fear reprisal. In a hopeful move, some honesty broke the fear that the people had and led to everyone seeing the world as it was, that the emperor had no clothes. In a move that ultimately kills that hope though, was that the emperor, upon seeing that he was naked, simply looked down, shrugged, and kept walking. And those with him kept holding his non-existent train. For everything they knew, the people could do nothing, as long as those who ruled continued with the lie. To paraphrase Cersei in Game of Thrones, knowledge isn't power, power is power. And of course, there are also economic ratings, that the scammers are making a point, that an artist should be compensated not just for the physical thing they make, but for the time and expertise that goes into it. Which, that one is 100% reasonable, I think. There's more to this, and I linked it on the post on mythpodcast.com. The next story is about another match. It's about an emperor and his daughter, who's looking to get married. But this story isn't about the dangers of careless authoritarianism, but about the dangers of love, and also careless authoritarianism. But that will be right after this. There was once a poor prince. Who was gonna go for it? Sure, the story says that there are princesses who would be happy to marry him, maybe even excited. He didn't want any of them. He wanted the emperor's daughter. It's kind of a misnomer to call him the prince. He was a king now that his dad had died. And since his dad had died, a beautiful tree had been growing in the late king's grave. It was a rose tree that bloomed once every five years but when it did bloom, the rose was beautiful. Its scent was so sweet that you forgot all your troubles. There was a nightingale that stopped to land on it, and the sounds it sang made it seem like all the world was shut up in its little throat, which is a really weird way to put that. The prince saw that these two rarities were gifts from his father. So, of course, he cut the rose, captured the bird, and put them both in silver caskets. When they arrived at the court of the princess empress, the court gathered round, Tiny caskets, which is another questionable choice. I mean, you can pick any box. Why go with tiny caskets? Which not only conjures up the idea of death, but child death. Anyway, the tiny caskets were opened, and out of the first, the rose tree grew. Out of the second, the birds sang, and the whole court stood in awe, except the princess, who slammed the lid shut. It was a bird. It wasn't a music box, it was a living thing. Yeah? So? The emperor asked. It was awesome. Who cared if it was a living thing? The princess wouldn't hear it, though. It was cheap is what it was. Living things. Get them out of here. Burn the tree and chase the bird away. The prince was undaunted, though. Making further terrible choices, he painted his face brown and black. Yes. And he drew his cap down. One morning soon after, he knocked on the door and asked for a job as a servant. Since the emperor apparently didn't know how to delegate, he was fielding requests from job applicants himself and also knew that they needed a swineherd. This guy was here and had a pulse? Congrats! The prince was the new swineherd. The next day, when the princess was walking down by the pigs, she heard a number one hit song. This is where the story gets weird, well, weirder. Because in one night, the swineherd had made a device that did two things. The first thing it did was play a hit song that went, Where is Augustus, dear? Alas, he is not here, here, here. Sidebar, please, if anyone knows that song or can find that song, let me know. Because that song was enough for the princess to be super into this device. Not only was it an early MP3 player that could play exactly one song, but it was a mass surveillance device. That was pretty much only limited to what people in Denmark were having for dinner. If you put one finger into the steam coming out of the pot, because it's also a pot with steam perpetually emanating from it, then you could smell what dinner was ready from any fireplace in town. The princess had to have it. So she sent one of her ladies-in-waiting down to ask the servant what it cost. Our hero said that it cost 10 kisses from the princess. Yes, he's rounding out his questionable choices hat trick by demanding favors for his little invention. The princess flat out refused, but that song just kept playing day after day, and to have a device that could play a song? Whoa. In the end, she relented, but only on the condition that her ladies-in-waiting spread out their dresses around her and the swineherd, so that no one would see her kiss him that night. There wasn't a fireplace in town where they didn't know what was being cooked. Also, the internet would have blown their minds. Being able to play more than one song, also way more sophisticated means of mass surveillance. Yeah. Still, they were happy. Until the next week. You know when the first iPhone came out, and it could play one song and also tell you what all your friends were having for dinner, and only those two things? And then the next year, the next one came out, and it could play all the waltzes and polkas that had ever been known since the world began. And you're all like, I have to have that. That's exactly how it was for the princess, when the prince made a rattle that could play all the waltzes and polkas ever. The daughter of the empress begged her ladies-in-waiting to go down and find out what the instrument cost, but she wouldn't kiss him again. That's messed up. You shouldn't ask that of strangers. He said no dice. Not only that, but the price was now 100 kisses. She had to change her position a little bit. Alright, what if she kept the same 10 kisses as before, but the balance of 90 kisses would be paid by her ladies-in-waiting? Which, I mean, at least the princess was making a choice in this. Showing that there's no such thing as a good character in the story, she threatened all of her ladies-in-waiting with homelessness, but they banded together and refused. Fine. The princess said she would kiss the swineherd, 100 times. The emperor looked out. Huh. A lot of those young girls were out playing in the pigsty, waving their dresses all around. I don't know why he thought this, but he said he must go down to them. His shoes stuck in the mud to the point where he had to go barefoot and able to get one shoe out of the muck, he had the only reasonable reaction one can have when they see people dancing. He threw a shoe at the girls' heads. I guess when you're emperor, you can get away with that sort of thing. They immediately broke and ran because a grown man, who was also the emperor, was throwing a muddy shoe at them. And when their dresses parted, they revealed the 86th kiss. The emperor was nonplussed. His daughter... His princess kissing a swine herd when she refused that nice prince who sent her the bird in the box? He wouldn't hear that she was only doing it to get the hot new gadget of the season. No, he didn't know what else she was up to and he wouldn't have his name dragged through the mud. Kind of literally in this instance. Anyway, he didn't need any surprises from her. He could marry again. He could have more kids. She was out. The princess didn't understand. Out? How was she out? She was his daughter. The emperor shook his head. Nope, not anymore. He was disinheriting her. She needed to get out. She didn't have to go home, but she can't stay here. Or home either, actually. She was exiled. She said that he couldn't do this. He threw up his hands. Uh, emperor, bye. She was angry but there wasn't a lot she could do as she was escorted out of the empire by Spearpoint. The swineherd was too, but he was only smiling. When they were on the edge of the empire, alone, she was mindlessly following the swineherd, muttering that she should have accepted the kind prince's proposal, the one with the bird. The swineherd, who had disappeared into a stream, and then behind a tree, jumped out in his prince clothes. Oh, you mean this prince? She shook her head. She didn't know. He just sent her weird gifts. They never met. He pursed his lips. It it was him. Instead of taking the rejection like a grown-up and marrying any one of the hundreds of women the story said would have been happy to marry him, he put on blackface and ruined her life. She looked at him. Okay, well, she didn't have a whole lot going on now, so, want to get married? He smiled and told her to follow him. Soon, they stood outside the walls of his city. He said that this was his. This is what she rejected when she didn't understand the rose or the nightingale and rejected him, preferring instead to kiss a swineherd for a toy. And this is what she got. Yeah, the hero of the story led her back to his castle just so he could slam the door in her face. She slumped down in the dirt. Her father didn't want her. She was homeless. And that creepy prince was just standing on the wall watching her. All she could do was sit in the dirt, cry, and through her tears, sing the song, Where is my Augustus, dear? Alas, he is not here, here, here. The end. So this story is noteworthy in that it subverts expectations a bit. Usually, in fairy tales, the vain princess learns the error of her ways. I guess the error being, not accepting marriage from any weirdo who sends her a bird in a box? And then the couple is reconciled. Hans Christian Andersen, however, says no. The world is a hard place, and the princess dies alone, starving and penniless. I mean, if you're familiar with any of his other works... Like the red shoes, which we'll tell at some point, where the Little Mermaid, episode seven, where the Little Mermaid contemplates bathing in the prince's blood after having her tongue literally ripped out of her mouth, it's not surprising that the world is kind of unforgiving. And that's the perfect way to transition to our final story. In this one, we're talking about actual matches. It's the story of the Little Match Girl. <laughs> Her feet were red and blue and cold. She had two slippers when she left home. Both had been lost when she was crossing the street. One of the slippers was buried in the fetid muck. The other was snatched up by a boy who said it would serve as a cradle for when he had children of his own because that's a normal thing to do and say. The slippers wouldn't have done much good anyway. They didn't fit her. They had belonged to her mother. Her hand shook in the cold as she dug into her apron. Matches. She had to sell the matches. She couldn't return home until she sold the matches. And she couldn't not bring back anything. She stumbled in the street. Invisible, as her face found the elbow of a passerby. It was nearly dark now. She couldn't come back with nothing. He wouldn't be happy if she came back with nothing. And if he wasn't happy... It was almost as cold there as it was here. The roof had only been stopped with straw and rags. and The walls were Swiss cheese. Her father had other ways of keeping warm, though. By now, the cold had stopped biting at her feet, even though they were buried in the snow. The girl held up the matches. Please. Anyone. But she was invisible. The snowflake settled in her hair and melted on her exposed neck. She shivered and looked at the matches. Just one. One would push back at the cold and the darkness for a few moments. She had to will herself to do it without thinking. If her father knew. She gripped the wood and ran the top against the wall, the bricks. It sparked to life, and in an instant, the world wasn't so cold. What are you doing down there? The girl heard, and with a gasp, she looked up afraid that it was her father, that he would see her. But it wasn't her father. It was a woman. An old woman. Before the girl could say anything, the woman had wrenched her up by her wrist and was pulling her along the street. She watched the last of the match, black and twisted and cold, tumble down into the snow. Sit, the old woman commanded, when they made it back to her house. She brought the girl a footstool, and fed the fire in the wood-burning stove. She told the girl to sit there until she could feel her feet again. When she could, she was to come to dinner. The girl could hardly believe any of this. Moments ago, she had been on the street, but now she was in a house, an actual house, not a reeking, drafty shack. The woman, too, looked like her grandmother, the only person that had ever loved the girl. She heard the familiar spark of a match behind her as the woman lit the tapers on the tree. The woman turned around and smiled, asking how the girl's feet were feeling. She wiggled her toes. Warm. They were warm. The girl stood and went to the tree, watching the candles burning like so many of her matches. She looked up and saw that the old woman was looking out the window. The candles on the tree twinkled in the reflection. Like the stars twinkled in the night sky. Then a motion caught her eye. The girl looked up. A star was falling, in a long streak of fire. Someone is now dying, she said to no one, and the old woman put her hand on the girl's shoulder. The girl's grandmother had told her that. Her grandmother was dead now. When a star falls, she had said, it is a sign that a soul is going up to heaven. The girl felt the hand leave her shoulder, and then, from behind, she heard the strike of another match. She turned, and the old woman was lighting candles at the table. The girl breathed in deep. How had she missed that? It was a goose stuffed with apples and prunes. The old woman said it was a dinner for friends who couldn't make it, but there wasn't any reason it should go to waste. It was St. Sebastian's Day, after all. New Year's Eve. Please, sit, eat. The dinner seemed to go by in an instant, and before the girl knew it, she heard the rough sound of another match coming to life. The old woman was lighting the fire in the fireplace, but the match went out. So she lit another, and it too went out. The girl rose and handed the old woman her matches, and the old woman smiled. In that smile, she really did look like the girl's grandmother. After the fire was lit, the woman sat on the chair and tapped her lap. The girl snuggled in, and it was all so familiar. It was like the time when they lived in a house before things got bad with her father, when her grandmother was still around, and when she would cook them meals like this, and the girl would snuggle into her lap fall asleep. The girl looked up. Her eyes were heavy and her blinks were long. The woman looked so much like her grandmother. It was just like the old times. She tried to keep her eyes open, but she couldn't. When at last her eyes closed, she felt weightless in the old woman's arms. She was so happy, so happy and so warm. The next morning, people finally noticed the little girl who had been out selling matches on the street. Leading up to her was a trail of burnt matches until, trapped in her frozen grasp, they saw the last of the matches burn through. The girl's eyes were closed and her mouth was smiling, frozen in the stiffness of death. The people could only stare at the girl and her matches. They had passed by her so many times. She had died, burning matches to keep warm. They wondered about her smile, and no one knew of that final embrace with her grandmother, who took her granddaughter into her arms and helped her in her passing. Yeah, the story is tragic. I like it, but it's tragic. The original tries to end on a happy note, that the girl is now beyond pain and reunited with her grandmother, who made her last moments happy and peaceful despite her freezing to death in the street. The story is originally for children. I know, right? And I see how it's trying to acclimate kids to the idea of loss and poverty and helping those in need while also trying to be hopeful, but wow, it is a dark ride. And I'm not affiliated with them in any way or... This isn't a sponsor, but Disney actually did a really good short adaptation of this. I'll try to post a link in the show notes if I can find it. It's it's really well done. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be back with a new episode. But if you're looking to support the show, we have our membership with almost 50 bonus episodes waiting for you right now in the member feed. Some source-back ebooks and ad-free episodes every week. Check it out at support.mythpodcast.com. Our store's back up and running too. There are new shirts, new stickers, awesome posters, you can check that out at mythpodcast.com slash store. The creature this week is the Sarah, from the best of medieval Europe. Picture this. You're on an old sailing ship across the sea, and the water's behind you. You see a form, one three or four times the size of your ship. The swell of water is growing behind you, and from the ocean. Sprout dozens of spikes. You have no choice. You run. Everyone gets on deck to put as much distance between themselves and the monster as they can. Is it a dragon? Is it a sea monster? Is there any difference between the two? Really? It doesn't matter. All you know is that you're going to die. But you're going to go down fighting. Going as fast as you can. The creature gets closer and closer. For as fast as it's going, you're going faster. Its head rises from the water. And you look into its hungry reptilian eyes, each one the size of your torso. You look down its maw with a shudder as it opens and gets closer and closer to the ship. And then it's all over. The creature falls away. You watch the form disappear back into the blue. You and your sweat-soaked crew don't dare let up for another mile or two. But finally, you relax. It really is over. The monster isn't coming back. You just met the Sarah, and it is super lazy. It tries to hunt because, sure, it's a monster, it has to. But its most noteworthy attribute is that it gives up. Always. Maybe it's not into the whole sea monster, water dragon thing, and just went vegan and has to go through the motions. Regardless, the Sarah is a massive, 90-meter-long, serrated manta ray-looking thing that, if it really tried could give the kraken a run for its kelp, but, I mean, that would be work. It does as much work as necessary, but is pretty content to just float around the rest of the time. And as a human, one of the main food groups for sea monsters, I'm pretty cool with that. You do you, Sarah, as long as it doesn't involve chewing me. Of course, since this is a medieval bestiary, a collection of creatures, oftentimes with a religious moral, there's a religious moral. The ship is the righteous Christian, speeding onward toward God, and the Sarah is somewhat fickle and lazy. They start out trying to be Christians, but then they get discouraged easily and fall away. The metaphor kind of doesn't hold water when you think about it. The creatures get discouraged, but they're also hunting the Christians while trying to be Christians. When it comes to the bestiaries, they can't all be winners. And honestly, that's just the way the Sarah likes it. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the creature of the week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Simply Safe for sponsoring us this week. Simply Safe is everything you need in a home security system. You'll have an army of highly trained security experts ready to dispatch police to your home at a moment's notice, 24/7, and you can set up the system all by yourself. Check it out today at S-I-M-P-L-I Safe. .com/legends Get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial at simplysafe.com/legends Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.